Father, we come before you praising you for your abundant care for us. We thank you that we have the opportunity to give back, that you call us to give out of hearts that are glad. And we are glad because of all that Jesus has done. And so we pray that you would now bless both the gift and the giver today as we place before you our tithes and our offerings to do with, according to your will, all that you see fit. And we do pray that these and and the the, the resources that we steward, Lord, would be used uh, for your glory in the nations here, throughout our country, and around the world. Lord, give us eyes to see that you reign over the nations, that you rule over all matters. Jointed. How does 45 go with 46? It really doesn't. 45 is short, uh, but I didn't want to cram it in last week. I wanted to give it a little bit more time, as you'll see uh, today. So that's why we're, we're approaching it this way. So Jeremiah chapter 45, and we'll read through chapter 46. This is God's word. Jeremiah 45, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch the son of Neriah when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no... Thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am breaking down, and what I have planted I am plucking up. That is... bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you the prize of war in all the places to which you may go. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations about Egypt. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses. Mount, O horsemen. Take your stations with your helmets. Polish your spears. Put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not, they look not back. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out. Day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. 
The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame, and the earth is full of your cry. For the warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal. Proclaim in Memphis and Tapanese. Say, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? They do not stand because the Lord thrust them down. He made many stumble and they fell. And they said one to another, Arise and let us go back to our own people and to the land of our birth because of the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea, shall one come. Prepare yourselves baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt, for Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. She makes a sound like a serpent gliding away, for her enemies march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell trees. They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts. They are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, said, Behold, I am bringing punishment among Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh in Egypt and her gods and her kings upon Pharaoh and those who put their trust in him. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited, as in the old days, declares the Lord. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. For in it you reveal yourself to us. And you show us who we are and our need for redemption. And so we thank you for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That by faith in him we are your children and can now come and hear your word even in the heaviness of such judgment, and know that you are just and that you rule over all. So would you instruct and would you encourage us today? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are going to put these two together. We're going to start with chapter 45, but let me tell you also that 45 deals with Baruch, and it's it's brief. I think there's a lot there. 
I don't want to give, give due time to it. 46 begins kind of an appendix of sorts at the very end of Jeremiah. You, you, if you peek ahead, you realize we're getting close to the end. We're going to make it. We're going to be done by Easter. And so this series of messages to the nations. And so you don't even have to guess what my sermon titles are going to be for the next couple of weeks. This is part one. Next week, you can guess it, part two. Uh, I don't have to be too creative that way either. But there are a series of messages to the nations, and the Lord starts with Egypt. And if you were to map out the, the geography of these messages, it would carry us up to the north and to the east and finish with Babylon. And so uh, the, 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 the final message is fitting that it applies to Babylon, uh, to the nation that would come and be the disciplinary act against Judah. Yes, God appointed Nebuchadnezzar as the agent of discipline. He called Nebuchadnezzar his servant, but he was also held accountable for his actions, just as all the nations were. You remember in Jeremiah's call to ministry in chapter 1 that the Lord said to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So while Jeremiah's primary role was to speak to Judah and to give them the message from the Lord, we've seen this already, but here at the end are these successive messages to the nations that the Lord declares through Jeremiah that he was indeed a prophet to the nations. And it's fitting that he begins with Egypt because he's going to end with Babylon. Egypt was the second greatest power in the world at this time. It's also where we left them in chapter 44, uh, historically, now this, these didn't follow, these messages were delivered earlier, but it's fitting that we pick up here because this is where the, uh, the, uh, the exiles who Jeremiah and Baruch were with, this is where they, they, they finished up was in Egypt. And so again, it traces the geography up to the north and will finish with Babylon. The messages to the nations, though, are a good reminder for us in our own day to think of uh, nations or other entities or even individuals that all will stand before God in judgment. Many act as if they won't. Many act as if God doesn't exist. But none are exempt from His righteous judgment. All will stand before Him and will be held to account. And it is only those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith who will, in the end, be able to stand. And so the messages to the nations then are both sobering and encouraging. Sobering in that they instruct us not to treat wickedness or oppression or injustice as insignificant matters. But they're encouraging in that we are not our own saviors. We are not the saviors of others, nor can we be. And we must continually to look to to Jesus as our deliverer and in confidence knowing that he has accomplished our salvation. And so looking now in chapter 45, we see that the, the word is given from Jeremiah, it's from the Lord through Jeremiah to Baruch. In other words, Baruch gets his very own message, his own prophecy. It's brief, it's not very long, but this is his message. And yet Baruch is the scribe, he's the one who recorded this, he wrote this down. And you might think, and I think you would be right, that if you were the one at the keyboard, so to speak, or you were the one with the pen and a, scry- or pen and a scroll, that, that, that you might have picked something else to include if you were going to write something about yourself. You might have picked something a bit more flattering. If the Lord had sent his rebuke against you, you might have thought, let's leave this part out and let's include something else. And again, I think any of us would be tempted to do that. But in, it's, this is one of those small ways that God um, speaks to the 
the, the authority, the inerrancy, the, the, the fact that Scripture is inspired, and that we see its human authors include things about themselves that, from a human standpoint, who would include this? I mean, and, you know, Baruch's not the only one. John Calvin brings this out in his Institutes of Christian Religion, mentioning Moses, who penned the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch. And if you think of what Moses recorded, recorded about himself, about him being slow in speech, he, his outburst in anger that ultimately kept him from entering the Promised Land. Think of how he wrote about his own family, Aaron and Miriam, and their murmuring. Or Jacob, the father, Israel, the father of the, the, the patriarchs, and his lying and cheating. I mean, wouldn't he have let this, left this stuff out? Why did he include it? Calvin says, shall we say that he speaks from the feeling of his flesh or that he is obedient to the command of the Holy Spirit? I select only a few instances out of many, but in the law itself, here and there, we will meet many proofs that vindicate the full assurance that Moses undoubtedly came forth like an angel of God from heaven. In other words, he was God's messenger just as Baruch was, showing us that if any of us were in charge, we would have left these out. It's a small detail, but I think it's worth noting that this assures us of the Spirit's authorship, even though humans who wrote it down would have had their own wills. They submit to the will of the Holy Spirit. And this is true of Baruch in chapter 45. Now, the timing of the event, we don't have to guess. It's told to us. It's the fourth year of Jehoiakim. This is 605 to 604 B.C. And so we're moving back chronologically in time from where we were in chapter 44. Some have suggested that the placement of this is like a bookend with chapter 36, so that the events that we looked at in 37 to 44 fit in between these two. And if you'll remember, in chapter 36, that was the account of the scroll being destroyed. Remember Jehoiakim burned, well, he he sliced and then he burned that first scroll that Baruch and Jeremiah had written And so as soon as he destroyed the scroll, the Lord commands Jeremiah and Baruch to start writing again, to produce a second scroll. And we're not told specifically that this was the reason for Baruch's lament, but I think that uh, it at least had to play a part because of the timing of it. This was the same time when Jehoiakim did this, that Baruch gets this message uh, message from the Lord and has this kind of crying out, you know, woe is me. Think about it. He and Jeremiah had worked together for for years, decades. Baruch, we know, was an educated man. He was a professional scribe. He was likely the son of a noble. We're told who his father is, but we don't know where exactly he fit. But his brother was a member of King Zedekiah's court. So it's likely they were a family of nobility. And so with that, understandably, expectations, hard work, good education, doing a good job would yield good things like a good living, a good reputation, good opportunity to move on up, so to speak. But that is not at all the deal that Baruch got by working with Jeremiah. I mean, he got, he got the shaft, you know. He got the raw end of the deal. Uh, he did not get to move on up in society. He had a job that again and again brought him very, very low. And so when we read what Baruch said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and I find no rest. We at least understand why he felt this way. And even if it wasn't just his expectations, the very message that Jeremiah delivered was a message of great weight, a great heaviness and sorrow. 
But because specifically God goes on to rebuke Jeremiah and says, do you seek great things for yourself? I think that it's safe to, to, to realize that in part it is at least his expectations that bring the sorrow that he thought, uh, this, is not, this is not what I signed up for. This is, this is not the deal that I was hoping to get. And then interestingly, before he rebukes him, the Lord kind of gives Baruch his own complaint about himself. He says, behold, what I have built, I am breaking down, and what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is, the whole land. And the grief of the, the Lord of Yahweh is almost palpable here, where he, he recognizes, I've spent more than a millennium planting this people. This people that are my treasured possession, the ones on whom I've set my affections, the apple of my eye, and now in grief and in sorrow, I am tearing down and plucking up. Baruch, you think you have problems? Take a look at mine. You know, I don't know. I mean, we're not given the exact reasoning. There are some who believe that's the intention behind it. I I, I do think it's worth considering because um, so often when we suffer, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of swing between, between two pendulums. We either go to the extreme of thinking, you know, our, our, our case is insignificant, that the Lord doesn't care, or we think that we've suffered greater than anyone in the world. And I think when we swing to that latter extreme, remembering the cross of Christ is important to know that we haven't suffered to the greatest extreme of anyone in the world, even though we might feel that at times. And here it's kind of that case, like Baruch Yeah, your grief is real. Your sorrow is real. Your mourning is real. But look at what I've look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm having to do. Now tearing them up. In grief and in sorrow. Ezekiel 33 11 says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And in Isaiah, writing of the afflictions of Israel and of God, he says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted meaning the Lord. Christopher Wright notes, God's anger is soaked in tears. The Lord doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. So the Lord is lovingly yet strongly rebuking rebuking Baruch. Here's a tongue twister. Rebuking Baruch and his complaint about what he had endured with Jeremiah. And in that same love, he gives him a promise. It's the same promise you'll remember he gave to Ebed-Melech. I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. And what is remarkable is that Baruch didn't give up. He continued on. He remained, even though he lamented and grieved, he continued with Jeremiah. And now this promise from the Lord, even though there's rebuke, there's promise. This promise reinvigorates his faith. And as we know, he got back to work and began the work all over again with Jeremiah writing the scroll. You know, you might think if you've ever lost a paper and had to retype it, that was a painful process. This was a whole other ball game. I mean, you know, no, didn't, no ballpoint pens. I mean, no typewriters, no backspaces, no edits, no whiteout. I mean, this was, you know, writing with some kind of quill, with some kind of ink on some kind of parchment or leather. It was, it was work. And to start that process all over again was work in and of itself. But the fact that it was such a heavy message the emotional weight of having to go back through that all over again was something to grieve. And then on top of that, he stays with Jeremiah. He stays with him through the attack on Jerusalem by the Babylonians. He stays with Jeremiah being carried off into exile, certainly against their will, into Egypt. 
And so one takeaway from all of this is how we pursue our own vocation. All of us have vocation. Even if you're not employed, you have vocation. Go back to the creation mandate. We've all been in trouble. We weren't just planted on this earth to, to, to lay around. We all have roles. We all have ways that we work and we serve and responsibilities. Every person from the youngest to the oldest, even if you are uh, listening online and, and homebound, you have vocation. For example, all believers have the vocation of the Great Commission. None are exempt from that. We are given the command to make disciples. How are we employing that vocation? Well, it's going to look different for all of us. Uh, We all have the vocation of being a people of prayer with the command to pray without ceasing. Uh, We are to be a people of prayer. That is part of our vocation. Some of us are skilled, gifted, and disciplined in that in ways that the rest of us can really admire. We uh, We all share in the vocation of fruitful works from the Spirit's power. We've all been given that responsibility to produce fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. By his power. And so this ought to mean then whatever my occupation, if I have one, my occupation as a Christian ought to be informed by that vocation as a Christian. If I'm a plumber, I ought to be the best plumber I can be. I ought to work diligently. I ought to be honest with my vendors, with my employees, with my customers. And I ought to serve and work with joy and hope. And it's true if I'm a nurse, an attorney, a store clerk, a skilled laborer, a manager, a government employee, or even a pastor. As Christians, we ought to be faithful to the task God has given us for whatever period of time he gives that to us. For the moment, for the day, or however long. Because even in from moment to moment, our vocation changes. The plumber comes home, maybe to be a husband or possibly a father. Maybe an elder in his church or a scout leader in his son's troop. He doesn't stop being a husband and father when he goes to work, and he doesn't stop being a plumber when he comes home, but his responsibility and his focus shifts. And so in an age and a culture where so many find their identity, their value, and their hope for a future in their vocation, Christians ought to be different. And like Baruch, we ought to press on and be faithful to the task that is before us. And this is only possible when we find our identity, our value, and our hope in Christ alone. The minute that we follow the world's pattern, putting our identity, our value, and our hope in, in say, our, our, it's, our, it's our occupation or our career or anything else, uh, we're, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to get off track. We're going to become distracted. But when we put our, we find our identity Uh, our purpose and our hope, our value and our hope in Christ alone, then we are able to serve no matter what God's called us to do. And when that changes, even in retirement, we can serve God in in, in that period, in that state of life. We're able to follow the apostles' exhortation in Colossians 3, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so you may shift through four or five different roles in a day, depending on your state and stage in life. But whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. And what this means is do it in faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
It is so easy to get into the rut of life to, 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 to base our, our effectiveness or our value or whatever in our, in our various vocations on our own diligence, on our own abilities, on the number of hours we work in a day, our intellect, whatever. But we are called to do what we do in faith, trusting the Lord, trusting Him with the results. And as we do this in our vocation, whatever work we're given to do, we should also trust Him with the results. Talked in Sunday school a little bit this morning. Melissa brought up the whole idea of comparison. And we so often do this. Why, why, haven't, why hasn't my life turned out? I, was, I went to the same school. I got the same degree. I had a higher GPA, whatever our reasons are. And this person got this deal and I got this deal. Now we trust God with the results of it all. Why? Because our faith is not in ourself, our accomplishments, how hard we worked. Our faith is in the Lord. And our work and our effort won't save us anyway. It doesn't add to anything. It doesn't guarantee us a nice and tidy life. And it certainly doesn't guarantee us security in the future. We must not only do our work in faith, but we must exercise our faith when it comes to things that are beyond our control as well. Because that's what we discover in this life. No matter how hard we worked in school, how uh, hard we worked on that internship to get that job, to get that career, there's a ton of things that are beyond our influence and our control. Things that happen around the world that we have no voice in. What do we do with all of this? We turn on the TV, we open our phones to read horrific news events, things happening, stories of injustice against the helpless. What do we do with it all? Well, the message to the nations that begins in chapter 46 at the end of Jeremiah's book here are here to remind us of God's sovereign rule over not only his people in Judah, but over all the nations. We are to trust him in matters that we have influence and those matters in which we have no influence or voice at all. He alone is king of the nations. And so this message that comes from the Lord to Jeremiah is recorded here for us. There are two oracles or two messages. They're in poetic form. And then at the end, there's a couple of messages that are written first to to Egypt and then some words to Judah at the very end. And so the first poem is in verses 2 to 12, and the second is in verses 13 to 24, and they cover two different events. We know more about the first because, one, the date and the location, the details are given. This was in uh, the fourth year of Jehoiakim, so again, 604-605 B.C., Battle of Carchemish. We understand the Egyptians came up to meet the Babylonians. to have, uh, to, to, they're, they're, they're fighting to become the next world power. So that's the first poem that addresses them there. The second is harder to date. And there are, uh, I think, good arguments to place it about 35 years later, but we won't be married to that uh, if you have a different opinion. The purpose of the word against Egypt is foremost that God is judge over all, that none escape his eye. There's no, there's no kingdom out there. There's no company out there. There's no uh, entity out there. There's no person out there who escapes the eye of God, who is going to get away with it, so to speak. All the nations are his because he is sovereign over all creation. And then the secondary purpose is that because we're backing up in time, this is going to precede the attack of uh, Babylon against Jerusalem. This happened before then. This was also a message for the people of Judah to hear, don't put your trust in Egypt. You know, we've seen this over and over again in the Israelites, the temptation to put their trust in other nations, other gods. That you just basically look around the world and see where can, where can I find my hope. And, and that's something that hopefully is very relatable because we do the same thing. 
were constantly looking for where can I put my hope, where can I put my security. They, they did that, and Egypt was often the target because of many reasons, proximity, geography, resources, and so forth. And God kept telling them, don't put your trust in Egypt. Egypt's not going to come up and save you. And yet there was this pro-Egyptian foreign policy group in, in Jerusalem at that time. So this message spoke to them as well. We know later on that the people did not only... Go to or look to Egypt. They went to Egypt, and and, and Jeremiah ended up uh, with them there in exile. But this all precedes that in the second part by about thirty-five years. Well, the first message begins with a charge to the Egyptian army, and we see it's very just uh, kind of a staccato. You know, it starts off: get ready, advance for battle. You know, we polished spears, shields, armors. Uh, armor, uh, horses, um, uh, you know, buckler, uh, different kind of shield, all that. Get ready for battle. He's speaking to Egypt. And, and as we read this, we get this sense of, of you know, Egypt's going to do something. And then verse 5 comes in abruptly, why have I seen it? Now, does the Lord need to ask a question like this? <laughs> He's basically saying, what have I seen? You know, what, what's going on here? Well, it's anthropomorphic language to help us understand this kind of like the surprise turn of events. Not that the Lord is ever surprised, but it's this way of expressing this idea that, you know, Egypt is not even, they're not even a match for the Babylonians. Their warriors are beaten down. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. And then in verses 6 and following, we see the, the, the Nile used as a metaphor for Egypt's pride. Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and inhabitants. We know the Nile rises every year to flood the plains uh, in, in the surrounding area, and that's why Egypt has always been fertile with, uh, for their agriculture. This image, though, is designed to represent the hearts of the nation who think they're going to become the next superpower. We see additionally that they have forces from other nations. There are others who've come to help them out from Cush, from Put. These are modern-day Ethiopia and Libya. But the battle that day was not just an earthly battle between worldly powers. It says in verse 10 the day that this, this battle is the day of the Lord, the God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. He is sovereignly using the Babylonian army to not only judge Judah in the future, which we'll see happen or we have seen happen, but at this day he has used Babylon to judge Egypt. The sword is going to accomplish its divine purpose. It shall devour and be sated. It's almost personified in its description. And then Egypt is addressed, O virgin daughter of Egypt, likely referring to the fact that she had remained untouched because, again, of her geography, where she sat, she had been uh, safe in that. But that's all a facade. It's all going to come to a crashing. And as they pursue north in this attack, they're called on in almost a mocking way to go up to Gilead. Gilead was known for its balm, for its healing medicine. And then the Lord says, no, there's no healing for you. There's no hope. The final words of the oracle communicate utter defeat and John McKay notes, Egypt's power has not brought her the victory she expected because she did not really identify who her foe was. Not Babylon, but the Lord who is directing the affairs of the nations to suit his own purposes. This is the Lord's doing. 
The second message to Egypt begins in verse 13, describes again an attack by Babylon. This time it's on their home turf. We see the same cities mentioned as we did in chapter 44 that the Judeans escaped to, that they settled in in Egypt. I think there's probably a connection. That's another one of the arguments for this later date that they were again victims of this judgment because they had put their trust in Egypt instead of the Lord. We see the picture of defeat He made many stumble and they fell. They said to one another, Arise, let us go back to our own people, to the land of our birth because of the sword of the oppressor. This is referring to the mercenaries, those who came from, again, modern-day Ethiopia and Libya to help. They wanted to go back home. They're later likened to fattened calves because they were basically well-paid and weren't weren't worth their salt. They they wouldn't fight. They just wanted to go back because they realized that the, the battle was hopeless. They were overpowered. And, and we see the, the, the metaphors of animals beginning in verse 20. First, it's Egypt, a beautiful heifer, uh, likely pointing out the prosperity she enjoyed agriculturally. She's attacked by the biting fly. If you've ever been out on the farm, you know the sight, right? The tail, the tail of the cow and the flies are coming around. That's the picture there. Uh, the soldiers I mentioned, fattened calves, they want to go back to their own home countries. Uh, verse 22, she's, she's likened to a hissing serpent fleeing when the forests are cutting down as those who come in. Uh, with axes who fell trees. It says the forest is impenetrable. Egypt really didn't have forests, but this is this metaphor here to, uh, to, to picture it. The army that comes, they're more no, numerous than locusts. They are without number. And then it ends describing the shame that will fall on Egypt at the hands of the army from the north. The Lord then adds these final words, first to Egypt and then to, to Judah. The words to Egypt is not only, not, is that not only is he going to do what he's just described, but he's also going to destroy their, their gods, their temples, and Pharaoh, particularly because he was seen as a deity. The people put their hope, their confidence, their trust in him, and so he is going to destroy them. All of them will be delivered into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But then he adds these words of hope in verse 26. Afterward... Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, or in the old days, declares the Lord. In other words, the purposes of Yahweh will stand. Nebuchadnezzar can only go as far as the Lord allows. And the Lord has seen fit that he will allow him to go only so far so that one day Egypt may be inhabited again. The last two verses are addressed to Judah. Very similar to what we read in Jeremiah 30, verses 10 and 11, the same language that was used there. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, says the Lord to his people, that he will ultimately deliver them, including from where they are when they're going to read this later, in captivity. He's going to bring them back. Jacob shall return, verse 27, and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. And then he says to them again, fear not, for I am with you. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. That is, you have a future and a hope. This is the discipline that I promised when you wouldn't repent over and over again. You're going to go through this, but there is a, there's a hope on the other side of this. And even when you ha- don't have eyes to see it, I'm calling on you to trust me. Trust me that I'm going to do this. So again, they are called to listen to the voice of the Lord and trust Him whose word, whose promises stand. So Jeremiah finishes the job he, he has. We see him, this is you know, coming to the end of his book. Baruch's there with him as his faithful assistant and scribe. He's the one who's writing all this out. Both of these men suffered much anguish in the writing and in the speaking of these words. Remember, they, both were not, they weren't just writing. They were also called on to speak. They suffered the consequences of the nation as it was judged by Babylon. 
when the army of Nebuchadnezzar came against the country. And they continued to suffer as they were carried off into exile by their own countrymen against their will. But they continued the work and they finished it. Uh, Why? Because they continued to trust the Lord. Uh, They put their trust in him. Their eyes, none of this would have made sense. I mean, Baruch, again, his career path should have looked so different from this. But he trusted the Lord with a difficult job and a difficult situation, and the Lord carried him through. Yes, he was rebuked for seeking great things for himself, but it was a loving rebuke. And it's a rebuke that we need to hear at times because we have the same kinds of expectations. Great life, great money, uh, accomplishing great things, maybe leaving a lasting legacy. That sounds noble, right? Nothing wrong with those desires necessarily, but we're not to pursue them for our own gain. Instead, we are called on to submit our wills, our desires, our plans to the Lord. And He has given us a promise that's greater than even Baruch got. Baruch got the promise that his life would be spared, but we have something that's even better than that because we have a living hope, an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And we are being guarded for that in faith in Christ. Even when we face trials and difficulties, this is what Peter wrote. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, it it is so easy for us to get our eyes fixed on inheritance in this life of of value, possessions, uh, advancement, success, security, prosperity in this life. All of it is going to fade away. Lord, we know this, but we're so tempted to build our own kingdoms, to pursue our own interests, to find uh, the, the end of our own desires. Lord, open our eyes to see this promise that we have a, an inheritance, a possession, a right, a privilege that has been guaranteed for us, not because of anything we've done, but in spite of what we've done, because of what Christ has done for us, in His death, in His life, in His resurrection, and now in His reigning. Lord, cause us to see this glory that You describe here in Your Word and all that is ours in Christ Jesus, so that as we suffer these various trials, which we will, that we may have eyes of faith to keep them fixed on You, that despite what we see, despite our circumstances, that we will walk forward trusting you, trusting you in the moment and trusting you with the results. Lord, cause us to steward our lives and the moments that you've given us well 
To your praise and glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response how firm.